The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. So this is week three of our six-week class on mindfulness of mind. So since January, we've been looking at the four foundations of mindfulness, the satipatthana, sometimes translated as the four establishments. And, you know, the point of this map, because, you know, conceptually, it's quite sophisticated map of how to be aware of the present moment. Body, feeling tone, mind, and really the path, the, liber- uh, the path towards the release of the heart, this fourth foundation that we'll talk about in the fall, in the fall Buddhist studies course. But it's really important that whenever we learn this map, really any of the maps from the Buddhist teachings, they have a pragmatic you know, point, which is to help us connect with the present moment. It's not about like mastering the map, And so it's okay to put things on the shelf, like maybe later it will make sense, maybe later it will be functional for me, I can use it to connect with the present moment, or maybe not. But the real point, like as you're reading and meeting in small groups every other week, so next week we'll have small groups again, we're just learning how to use these teachings functionally to see and understand what's here and now. Like even that, as I mentioned in the first couple of weeks, just the teaching that it's relevant to be mindful of the mind. I mean, if that's all we did these six weeks, is just kind of chewed on that, use that skillful thought as a kind of setup for curiosity to do that you know, you know how we have such an external orientation to sounds and sights, and even our mental projections, our thoughts, as an external thing. It's almost like when we think, it's not that much different than scrolling through the internet. It's just the screen of our mind instead of the screen of our computer. But, but that curiosity is turning the awareness and um, as Venerable Analio says in his book on the Satipatthana, the practice guide, the last he's written three books on this uh, discourse from the Buddha on the foundations of mindfulness. And the more recent one, he really talks about the you know this movement of being aware of the mind. It's not like we're looking for an object. It's it's a more comprehensive and I might say like soft sense of here and now. If we look too hard, like if we're expecting to find the mind like we find the ache in our knee or we pick up in the sound of that car or, you know, we'll we'll miss the mind. But there is a way to be aware of the mind the coloring of the mind, like it's a little anxious, it's a little dull, 
It's a little wiry, restless. It's diluted. It's clear like a bell. And it's just, you know, curious, like, who do we become? How do things unfold when we've cultivated, you know, established this new habit to be interested in the mind? How does it change things for us? Is it helpful, like, just in terms of being a human being? And we have to get over that initial hump because it does feel a little awkward, as I think I mentioned last week or two weeks ago, like, oh, I don't, I don't think I'm supposed to be paying attention to this. Why? Oh, because I feel anxious and uncomfortable when I do. But that may be just because it's not our habit. We're unfamiliar with that movement of turning the mind toward, back toward itself. I don't know if I read this last week from Saida Utejaniya, this Burmese monk, one of my teachers. One thing you need to remember and understand is that you cannot leave the mind alone. You need to watch constantly. If you do not look after your garden, it will overgrow with weeds. If you do not watch your mind, defilements will grow and multiply. The mind does not belong to you, but you're responsible for it. And I sent you the, uh, a collection of his quotes about the mind uh, in either this week or last week's uh, email. So if you didn't, and you'll have that quote as well as a few others where he's talking about the mind. And the thing is about the mind and the defilements like these habits of greediness and lust, these habits of aversiveness and anxiety and fear and these habits of distractedness and denial and delusion. You know, delusion sometimes is thinking that we know. And when we think we know what's happening or we think we know who I am or we think we know someone who someone else is, then there's no more humility and curiosity and sensitivity because the mind is fixed on its certainty, on its projection of who I am, who you are, what's happening now, what's right, what's wrong. So it's no longer in the wildness of the present moment and learning. And Because however we might fix and conceive and construct meaning, that is never the present moment. That's that you know, mental construction. So we, you know, a lot of the learning is just establishing this awareness of the body because one of the things we realize in being aware of the body, as I mentioned in the guided sit tonight, it's not special. Some of you remember the 32 body parts we did in the winter. You know, there's the skin, there's the bones, there's the... And the point of that reflection, the traditional 32 body part reflection is to realize that embodiment is neither beautiful nor ugly. It's not special. It's just what it is. And the sensations of hardness or heaviness or lightness or smoothness or coolness or warmth or stillness or movement that we feel in the body, they're not really, they're not, they're neither special nor personal because whatever you're feeling in your body or you're feeling in your body, 
those qualities of heaviness or lightness or hardness or softness or warmth or coolness, it's not specific to me. It's just those elements of sensation, those aspects of sensation, they're universal. They're not personal at all. And the other thing we notice in being with the body, it's a, like I think I said in the guided meditation, it's a river. So that, that sort of anchor of embodiment, of course, you know, this is the interesting thing, is we start to notice aspects of the present moment and, and it's all like informing the deeper reality. So the feeling tone also has that same we have the, you know, some of the same realizations and getting to know the more subtle truth of this river of feeling as opposed to the river of sensation. So like every experience, every contact with a sound, with a sight, with a sensation, and with a thought evokes a feeling. In this sensitive drum, <laughs> this taut string of our heart, you know, and it, I point to this physical location, but you know it's it's our whole our heart is really like this. I you know I said at the end of the guide, it said this is our mind. You know what we're experiencing right now, whatever you're experiencing right now, is being known in the mind. So we're always, and we have always, and we will always only have a mind moment, a moment of mind of knowing the mind, the screen of the mind, or the space of the mind. Maybe it's more holographic than two-dimensional screen, right? But that's all we ever know. And part of the moment is a sense of embodiment being known by the mind. And this sort of taut, affective drum skin or taut string, like a violin string or something, that is just Every contact, every sense experience has an effective feeling tone that's basically how the past experiences inform the present. So when I see people that I recognize in the room, you know, I see Zenzele and, you know, the people that we are familiar with or even the cushion I'm familiar with, like I recognize those cushions, those, that's a Zafu and it's sitting on top of the Zabutan. Every single ordinary contact and unusual contact evokes a feeling. And it's that, you know, that's what emotion and feeling tone is. It's an information system. It's like the, the past conditioning uh, arises when the mind recognizes the present experience, the contact perceives it, recognizes it, and the past conditioning evokes this feeling tone, this effective feeling. And that's a constant flow, movement, changing experience. So we have embodiment, this river of sensation, we have this river of feeling, and then we have this river of mental activity all in the space of the knowing mind. And then the last foundation that we'll do on in the fall is really like when we get some stability in these three rivers, 
Then the fourth river, you know, the simple way of understanding the fourth foundation of mindfulness, it usually gets translated as mindfulness of dhammas. They don't translate dhammas. Mindfulness of mind objects, when people do translate it, they might say mind objects. But I, I think the better way of understanding it is really understanding like, okay, so now I have a clearer, more intimate sense of the activity of the body, the activity of feeling tone, the activity of the mind, mental activity. And I, I can now keep in mind when that activity of body and mind, the activity of this life, is moving towards liberation, moving towards suffering. That's really what the fourth foundation is about, is understanding like, okay, now I have a sense of the present moment. This is the mind, the heart. This is my life. This dance of gross, which is body, medium gross, which is feeling tone, subtle, which is mind, right? It's almost like different frequencies of the present moment, gross to subtle. And one aspect of that activity is, is this dance of the present moment gravitating towards suffering, contraction, or gravitating towards release? So that's a a specific foundation, one more thing that we could pay attention to or be interested in. But it's the most subtle in a sense. It's more, you know, it's one thing to know there's mind, there's knowing, the mind's like this, how's the mind doing? And it's another thing to have enough stability and sensitivity to be able to discern as we're aware of body and mind, is the heart gravitating towards suffering or release? And to just understand that as a natural process, a, a lawful life. When I'm getting tight, when I'm getting more and more stressed out, more and more reactive, oh yeah, that, of course, it's like this now because this is what's in motion. So the fourth foundation, we're really observing the lawfulness of suffering and the lawfulness of release because it's the not seeing the lawfulness of suffering that keeps suffering in motion. The Buddha basically, I mean, that's a, a pretty good translation of one of the teachings of the Buddha. You know, he talks about how long, for how long people have been spinning in cycles of suffering, samsara. And he asks, why? Why have beings like you and me been spinning so long in cycles of suffering? It's because of not seeing the lawfulness of suffering this fourth foundation. There are lawful causes. When things aren't seen as they are, then suffering replicates itself. When the causes for suffering are seen for what they are, suffering ceases. And it's not personal. It's not like I do this or you do this. And that's really, that's why, you know, if if you remember the the beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta, this discourse on mindfulness the Buddha gives or gave, you know, he says, this is the path for liberation, for the removal, the abandoning of sorrow and lamentation and this whole mass of suffering. This is the way. We're being aware, mindfully, wisely aware of the present moment 
and to help us learn how to be present, he creates a map that's here, you know, mindfulness of body, mindfulness of feeling tone, mindfulness of mind, mindfulness of dhammas, the path to release and the lawfulness of contraction, of distraction and stress. And when this is really just what's here and now, what's always here and now, and when we're mindful with enough persistence and cultivating the mind that can be mindful, that knows how, that has learned how to be, to stabilize present moment awareness, then eventually that most subtle aspect of what's here and now, how the mind, like what are the root, what's the root causes of suffering, wrong view, self-view, self-centeredness, to see that as a natural process is the undermining of that habit, right? So that's not so easy for us to see how right in this moment, you know, with me up here giving a talk, how the mind is framing it as self, me, I'm up here giving this talk, and I think it's going pretty well, or something like that, right? Like that framing just happens so naturally. And in the mind, like, you know, the reason we often begin with the body, because it's just more concrete, it's just more available. And then feeling tone. And, you know, it's like, our capacity changes moment by moment. So when we're less grounded in the present moment, then we might want to immediately go back to the body. Oh yeah, there's a body here. But we're in kind of somewhat of a mindful state. We might operate in the world by just being aware of that affective feeling tone. Just staying present with feeling tone as we're, you know, but maybe when things are more refined, we we sort of turn inward, oh yeah, the space of the present moment that has the shading of irritation, has the shading of wanting to make something happen, greed, has the shading of dullness, has, you know, so we're just the more subtle shadings of the knowing mind, like the filters or colorings of the mind, or even just seeing the birth of self. How does that habit repeat itself to frame the moment, to establish that frame, this is happening to me. You know that well-known phrase from the Buddha, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. So this is from that, um, it's really a great text for this whole year's study of the Satipatthana, and it's called Satipatthana Meditation, a Practice Guide by Bhikkhu Analyo. Bhikkhu, remember, just means Buddhist monk. So his monastic name is Analyo. And this is that German monk who's mostly in residence at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies in Massachusetts, which is, shares the campus with uh, Insight Meditation Society, the Retreat Center, and the Forest Refuge. So there are three sort of somewhat separate entities on this beautiful hill 
in the middle of Massachusetts around, I think they have like 800 acres. So it's a, it's a really an amazing place there if you get a chance. And then the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies is more of a study place, but they do some practice as they're studying. And uh, the uh, organization built Venerable Analio a beautiful little kuti cabin so that he will live there <laughs> and teach there. And it's really a, a great boon for us to have him. He had been in Sri Lanka and then back in Germany to help uh, be with his one of his parents or maybe both of his parents as they got older, but now is mostly at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. And like I mentioned, he's written three books on the Satipatthana, which is just a great demonstration of somebody with already a good practice who keeps learning and developing their practice and therefore has to write another book that reflects the deepening of their practice. And I just find this just uh, so encouraging. And so the latest one is, the subtitle is A Practice Guide. And uh, in the chapter on mindfulness of mind, chapter seven, near the beginning, you know, where he translates part of this uh, section where the Buddha is talking to mindfulness of mind. I think I read this the first week, but it's nice to hear it again. One knows a mind with lust to be a mind with lust. No judgment there or knows a mind without lust to be a mind without lust. Now, wouldn't that be amazing if sometime today we noticed, oh, this is a mind without lust. And especially like if we were around something that the heart felt attracted to, and then it just occurred to wisdom, oh, this is a mind without lust. Interesting. You know, you look, or you're maybe at a restaurant, and you see the, the dessert, Oh, this is a mind without lust. Oh, this is a mind with lust. Oh, okay. Good. Good to know. Or one knows a mind with anger to be a mind with anger. Or one knows a mind without anger to be without anger. Or one knows a mind with delusion to be a mind with delusion. Or one knows a mind without delusion to be a mind without delusion. Or one knows a contracted mind to be contracted mind. Or one knows a distracted mind to be a distracted mind. And then he writes, although in what follows, I will be taking up in detail the individual states of mind mentioned above. At the outset, I would like to note that the main thrust of this third foundation can be summarized as a continuous inward monitoring with the question, how is the mind? And that alone, like if that's all we did, is 10, 20, 30 times a day, sincerely ask that question as we're sort of operating in our day. How's the mind doing? How's the mind? You see, like, that's called wise thought, as opposed to so many of our thoughts which are not helpful. But like a thought that, in a sense, takes the mind to the edge of concept, like it's a concept. How's the how's the mind, right? That's a that's a thought. It's not the mind, but it's a thought that, in a sense, brings the awareness into the present moment with a possibility of actually looking, having a sincere experience of turning in. Well, how is the mind? That awareness. 
Whatever may happen outside, which is where our attention usually goes, becomes secondary from this perspective. What really counts is how the mind reacts to it. This is what we need to keep noticing. It is such knowing of our own mind that is the chief concern of the present satipatthana, mindfulness of the mind, for the purpose of which the actual mental states listed serve as aids. Right. So the map isn't the point. The map points the knowing mind toward the knowing mind. So this map we're learning this summer, mindfulness of the mind, is just turning the mind. So that's why each of us, you know, we have some responsibility to translate bits, parts of the teachings you get that resonate with you and chew on them. Keep regurgitating them in your formal meditation time and then throughout the day. Because the... uh, Because the, uh, if we don't make it real, like that's that, we get the information, but we have to make it real so we can reflect, we can contemplate, we can regurgitate the idea because it's real to me. And then that rubbing where we're using the map to see the present moment in new ways, not in habitual ways, more real ways or more honest ways, then we have insight. We see something that's here and now that we haven't seen as clearly before. And we get that seismic shift in understanding because we got some new information that was different than our existing information. We took it initially just on borrowed faith, like, well, Buddha may know something that I don't know. So let me, you know, and let me translate it so that the words make sense but not corrupt it, not force it to align with what I already think is true, right? That's, that misses the point. So it, it needs to be somewhat provocative, the information of the mind. Is there lust? Is there no lust? Until we see something we haven't seen. Oh, this is the mind. This is the mind with lust. This is the mind that's settled. This is the contracted mind. Someone in the chat asked, like, what is a contracted mind? Well, that, that, that's exactly what I'm saying. So just chewing on that word. Well, what is a contracted mind? What is a mind that's not contracted? Like when a mind is dull, there's a kind of contraction, you know, kind of an inward into oblivion as opposed to a restless mind, wiry mind, expansive mind, proliferating mind. But you know, that's why we have to think about the teachings enough that we can line up the language from somebody who spoke 2,600 years ago and then translated, you know, then an oral tradition for about 500 years, you know, eventually written down somewhat conservatively stored over these many centuries, you know, and then gets translated from Pali to English. You know, so we we need a little license to like, I wonder what they were talking about. And this is what these kind of classes and discussions are really useful for. And then a little later in that chapter, uh, Venerable Analio writes, 
Imagine a snowball rolling down a hill. So we're talking about mindfulness of the mind. It will be easier to change its course or to stop if we catch it close to the top of the hill. Once it's moved further down and become bigger and faster, it will be much more difficult to intercept. The course of the mind is similar. right? So if we're establishing mindfulness of the body, breath, sensation, have some... Um, immunity like curiosity about feeling tones, so therefore not so pushed around by pleasant and unpleasant and neutrality. Right? We get stable. Then we're going to catch the subtle activity of the mind more quickly. Now in a normal state, a worldly state, like when we're out in our daily lives, more, more or less distracted, then we generally don't notice what the mind's doing until we're really in some kind of rut or aversive storm, or greedy lust storm. And then it gets so tight, contracted, or heavy, that it's, what's going on, right? It's the suffering that often ends up waking us up. What am I not noticing? And then we look at the mind, and we realize, oh, but that's already, you know, the snowball's been rolling down the hill for a while. It's got some mass. Not so easy then to be mindful of it, because it, when it's so big and has so much momentum or drama, it's very seductive. And we get, even if we have a moment of awareness, oh, there's a big drama going on, we tend to get sucked right back into it. Even if we have a few moments of some clarity, it isn't long before we. I mean, I was noticing that before the sit. I, I, before 7:30, I was sitting. Actually, I was lying down and meditating in my room in my office, and. Um, it's just noticing because there's just a lot happening um, at the center and at Prairie Farm, the, the retreat center, and just generally a lot going on. Ajahn Chandako is going to be talking on Wednesday night, and he's visit, he's staying at our place, and so there's just busier than usual. And I just noticed my mind kept, you know, going into the, like mapping out my life and what I need to do, and okay, we'll do this, and and it's just a way to. Um, manage uh, manage uh, anxiety by kind of imagining how it might all play out and okay that's okay you know as if that mapping out is reality no it's not but it makes me feel better that i can imagine how it might play out this week okay that i can tolerate that but that's because there's this head of steam and that's why it's so good to even as we're moving, I mean, I'll say something, it's a little provocative, but some people, like I think even Venerable Analio, you know, they're careful when they're out in the world, like what they're looking at. You know, generally, a or ordinary folk like you or me, when we're driving in the car, I'll look at anything that's provocative, you know, on purpose, because it's provocative. But it's sort of like, it's sort of like when we're scrolling in the internet, it's, Do I need to read that? Do I need to look at that? Is that helpful in any way? Sometimes the answer is, yeah, you should really get that information. That would be useful for you to know. But a lot of the time it's like, no, it might be better to preserve the grounded sensitivity so that when something shows up in the moment that you really should know, you really should be sensitive to, you're going to bring this really grounded, purified sensitivity to it. But what we're doing often is we're dissipating 
our stability of mind, stability of heart, because we're just like a junkie and we're just sort of looking for the next interesting sight or sound or smell or taste or touch or thought. And we're kind of digging around looking for something to provoke the heart because we feel alive when that taut drum skin or taut string of our affective heart, you know, that feels. We feel alive when it's reverberating. And, you know, this is a terrible thing. We don't really care if it's painful or pleasant. We just want drama. We want to feel alive. We want to be reminded that I'm here. How do I know? Because I'm feeling a lot, you know. And, and this is the thing about worldly existence, why we want to, you know, cultivating this calm and seclusion and stability of awareness seems a little bit like an affront given how much suffering there is in the world and how much the world needs attention, the injustices, the unfinished business, the healing that really needs our attention. But the thing is, we're just replicating these stressful cycles because when we do look at suffering, there's no stability of awareness. So we don't see something we haven't seen before. We see it in the way we're conditioned to see it. Oh, that's happening because of these people. You know, There's no freshness. There's no insight so that we can actually change things. How do we as humans, get out of the box. You know, whether the box for us in one particular moment is being the victim or the box for us in the next particular moment is being the perpetrator, the person using power because I'm the one who sees clearly, I'm going to, you know, I'm not changing. Or whatever the particular stance of the mind is, things just keep happening over and over again. Even though there are moments we have clarity, we see how we're stuck, doesn't mean we know how to get out of the stuckness. So that's why we want to be curious. Well, maybe the Buddha and others know something that we don't know. Because like the Buddha might say something, the problem is misperception. The problem isn't that we don't care. The problem is we're misperceiving the problem. We're not clearly understanding the underlying problem. So all of our attempts to resolve the truth of suffering don't work. End up either making things worse or you know, keeping things in motion, keeping the suffering in motion. So the way we change that is we stabilize the awareness. And this is really what mindfulness of the mind, it really comes has a lot to do with this. And this is what Venerable Analio writes here. Activating this potential requires the willingness to look at our own shortcomings, right? to see the mind, the activity of the mind as it is. He writes, this is another topic already broached in the previous chapter, the importance of learning to bear with patience the recognition of any failure to live up to our own standards. Like, when we see the mind colored by aversion or colored by greed, we don't panic and scold ourselves. What do we do? We observe it. And that's really important, like not to be disgusted 
when we see the mind in a contracted state or in an unskillful state. Oh yeah, that's how the mind is. Because we really want to understand what it is. It seems like we should be justified in scolding ourselves or wanting to fix the mind when we notice, see it as it is. But that's part of the problem. Because we're personalized, like thinking that my greed is me and therefore should be destroyed or hidden, it's misperceiving it. I haven't yet understood that greed is just greed. It's neither, it's not personal, it's not self. But it's still something that I want to be responsible. I want to see it clearly so as not to perpetuate suffering. So he writes, he continues to write, The feelings experienced at such times are most likely feelings of the unpleasant type, like when we see the unskillfulness of our mind. Such feelings take on an unworldly dimension because they have the potential to lead us forward on the path. So this is sort of a funny term, unworldly feelings. Some of you who did the spring class might remember that. An unworldly, unpleasant feeling means that I'm aware that it's unpleasant, like I'm watching the mind, I notice there's a lot of ill will in my mind, but I'm watching it without judgment. Now, it's ill will, so it's an unpleasant quality in my mind. I'll feel the unpleasantness of that ill will, or lust, or whatever the particular unskillful quality of mind might be. But now, seeing the ill will, feeling the unpleasantness of it, is called unworldly because if it was a worldly unpleasantness, I'd react by wanting to get rid of my ill will. But it's unworldly because I'm using the scene of it for liberation, which means I'm seeing that the, uh, that the ill will is not self, that it comes and goes, that having dispassion, letting it cease on its own, is in the direction of liberation and being a better human being. So it works all around. It's good for me and it's good for those I might have ill will toward. Learning that ill will is not self, it's nature. Learning that ill will comes and goes according to causes and conditions, that I can let it cease because one of the causes for it to be there is not seeing it clearly. And one of the causes for ill will to go away is seeing it for what it is. Try to see, like when you have a so-called negative mind state, you know, and we're paying attention to mind states these six weeks, don't freak out. Get really interested. Okay, there's, you know, this is great. Like those of you who are in a long-term relationship or have a good friend or connected to one of your siblings or family members, a parent, for example, where we tend, you know, these these important relationships in our life, kids, of course, would fit into this category, adult kids especially, you know, where we have a strong connection, then we can feel all kinds of things very strongly, like ill will. I mean, just let's be honest. People we're close to can push our buttons, bother us. And so then it's nice, like because we might be sitting on the couch together or having dinner together, And there we are noticing all that ill will or wanting to fix them. 
you know, having a lot of greed about who we think they should be. You know, oh, you'd be so happy if you were only the person I want you to be. And then we can see, oh, this is interesting. Because we love them so much, and beca- it becomes obvious that this projection isn't helping and is a cause for suffering. So we can have this curiosity because it's interesting, and even with a sense of humor, like, oh, wow, you know, this is such a big should, like you should stop that, or you should become this person. And then it's just like sits there in the room, in our heart, you know, and we can be aware. And if the stability of awareness and the, the purity of the curiosity is such, we'll see that, It's not self. It's there, the should, right? The construction, the mental construction. There's all these impulses to identify, but there's enough wisdom that knows with every movement towards identification, believing with arrogance certainly that this is true, there's suffering. And when there's more of that balanced wisdom awareness that knows it's just a thought, not self, coming and going according to causes and conditions, it's not a problem. It's almost like it becomes porous. You still have the tendency to want to project that on the person you love, but it's almost like you see that that tendency is not self. You see its impermanent, conditional nature, and you're not frightened by it. And you can even, like I said, have a sense of humor about it. Self-deception, Venerable Analeo writes, as a means to avoid the displeasure of seeing our own shortcomings stands diametrically opposed to the whole thrust of progress on the path. So let me just reread that. Self-deception, like not having an honest relationship with these mental qualities, greed, hatred, delusion, too little energy, too much energy, right? This is, we really want to get to know them. And thinking that, oh, I can't see this, or I don't want to see this stuff. No, we want to see this stuff. This is a sign of progress. This is like one of the great things about getting to know people on the path is that we give each other so much permission to be honest about what we're noticing in our own mind. Because it's a, it's like a badge of dharma honor to know how I'm lustful or how I'm, you know, how ill will operates in my mind or how many ways my mind disconnects from the present moment, you know, by overeating or, you know, obsessing, creating little bubbles that I disappear in one way or another. You know, these things that friends of ours, you know, they have these little things that they care so much about. And after a while, we kind of get, oh, this is how that person disappears. You know, they imagine that these things are really important. Porcelain animals, you know, that they have on a shelf and they don't let anybody touch. I mean, I'm not making fun because I'm not saying that what I'm into is any more important than anybody else. But it's, it's like these excuses from this honest sense of the mind. 
few more things I want to share before opening it up. This is from Ajahn Amaro, this uh, British Buddhist monk. He's now the abbot of uh, Amaravati, where there's some Buddhist nuns and Buddhist monks and lay people practice uh, not too far outside of London. And he's, this is an article. I forget if I share this with you. It's just titled Thinking. We can approach thought by trying to dissolve it. If there's enough wisdom in our response to thinking, we can simply say, this is just a thought. It's not me or mine, and we can cut thinking off as if with the sword of Manushri, which is a Tibetan deity, that sword of wisdom. But if there's not enough wisdom, this can easily turn into an aggressive process. We may believe thought is an infection, a kind of nasty fungal growth that is occupying the space between our ears. And we can think we need to wipe it out. One teacher, Shyla Catherine, a friend of mine, and she gave a talk here on Tuesday night not that long ago. She calls it, uh, some of you remember, the Flintstones in the Barney and, what was Barney's partner's name? Anyway, their son was called Bam Bam. And he had that club, you know, Everything he did was bam, bam, bam. And that's like when we have these thoughts. It's like, oh, I'm doing that again. Bam. And you'll see this. I mean, it's subtle. But it's like you think you're just being aware of it. But there's, you know how there's that like, I know you're bad. It's like a parent does with a child sometimes. You know, that evil eye, that kind of stare. You don't mess when the parent's like that. And it's the same thing when we're, looking at the bad things in our mind, that sort of trying to wipe it out. We can think that we need to wipe it out or it can become suppressive. As Westerners, this push, oh, I'm sorry, as Westerners, along with our great capacity to think, we have tremendous willpower and we can use this to push thought down, to hold it back. And this can be effective for a certain amount of time, but when the will wobbles, and it will, the dam breaks and we are overwhelmed with conceptual thought again. So for myself, I have learned, learned that the best way to deal with excessive thinking is just to listen to it, to listen to the mind. Listen is much more effective than trying to stop thought or cut it off. When we listen, there is a different mode employed in the heart. Instead of trying to cut it off, we receive thought without making anything out of of it. During one of the monastic retreats at Amaravati Buddhist Monastery in England, Ajahn Sumedho said emphatically, quote, all your thoughts are garbage. You may think that some of them are good, but you should consider consider the possibility that all your thoughts are garbage. That's sort of interesting. I mean, just as a provocative teaching, well, that's just a thought. You know, it's just like a spewing. Sometimes, you know, we think of waterfalls as being really beautiful, but it's, there's something in that ongoing flow of water. It's natural, it's a natural process, but there's something restless in that. And that's true with the thinking mind. This is 
you know, this human realm, being a human being, in, in Buddhist sense, in the teachings of the Buddha, this is a restless realm. This, being a human being, the karma of being a human being, the reality of being a human being, it arises because there's unfinished business. Some of you have heard this because it's told many, many times, but Trumpa Rinpoche was a really uh, both respected and very controversial teacher, one of the early um, Asian teachers to come to the West, a Tibetan uh, teacher. And he's the founder of Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado, pretty famous place now, and Shambhala teachings um, are derived from Trumpa Rinpoche's teachings. But somebody once asked him, well, what gets reborn? You know, the Buddhist in the Buddhist tradition, the, you know, the understanding of rebirth. And his, he had a great answer. You know, he didn't say unfinished business, but he, he said your neurotic tendencies is what gets reborn. And the Buddhist tradition, if you're fully awake, you're not even here now. The Buddha said something like this, like somebody was asking, what happens to Buddha? What happens to you when you die, Buddha? And he said, you don't even know who I am now. You know, you presume I'm what you think. You presume that I am what you think I am. So then you wonder, like, what I think you are, what happens when you die? But you don't even know what I am. I'm just nature now. I'm not that entity, that Mark, or that Cam, or that Zenzile, or that, you know, I'm not that person you think I am, that entity, that fixed thing. So the question doesn't apply. Just like we wouldn't say, you know, what happens to the weather today? You know, or what happens when a fire goes, where does the fire go when it goes out? That's another image the Buddha would use as a simile. Where does it go? Well, there were causes, there was this activity dependent on fuel, and so the fuel for a human being, unfinished neurotic business, right? Tendencies to greed, hatred, and delusion, that's the fuel, and with that fuel and the supporting conditions, you get the activity of fire, and with awakening, the fire goes out. Now, the deluded self says, well, I'm not so sure I want to go out. Well, you don't have to. Just keep using greed, hatred, and delusion, and you know, at least in terms of Buddhist cosmology, you'll keep going on and on and on and on. Let me just finish this before I take a few comments. So all your thoughts are garbage. And then he continues writing, Ajahn Amaro, some people may have felt that this was an insulting thing to say, but I found it brought a tremendous sense of relief. One of the biggest problems with thoughts is that we tend to believe everything they say. If I'm thinking it, it must be true. But actually our thoughts are just a collection of habitual judgments, perceptions, memories, and ideas that are fed through consciousness. They may have some relationship with truth, but they may not. If we take as a baseline, the notion that most of our thoughts are like random barking of a dog, we make less out of them. And therein lies the sense of relief. And then 
we then find that we can relate to thought in a much more open way. We are not looking on it as being meaningful or true or realistic at all. And we're not giving it a value beyond what it really has. This is a fun thing to do sometimes. I'm sure many of you have done this, where you go to like a park. I I took a creative writing class a long time ago at the University of California in Berkeley, and and, uh, we had to write. So I went to the, I think it was the 4th of July at the Berkeley Pier, and maybe some of you have been there. It's kind of a cool place because you look at the Golden Gate Bridge and San Francisco skyline and the Marin headlands, the hills in the, in the county north of San Francisco. It's really beautiful and facing west, so you see the sunset. And, you know, just tons of people. And, you know, just sitting on a blanket, and, of course, it was crowded, and you're just hearing fragments of so many different conversations, and you just get the sense like the content of all these different conversations that different people are having in even different languages, it's like the content's not important. It's just like a dance of energy. And, and the sort of, but a lot of the time we, we hold the content of thought so precious as if it's, like Ajahn Amaro just said, me thinking that thought. But it's just nice, like next time you're in a conversation with someone, just almost like you're, leaning back a little bit into more spacious. And what's really going on is a movement of energy. And the actual content of what we're saying to each other is much less important than energy is moving. Energy is being known and moving and doing what energy does. And the energy might be sharp or it might be soft, might be healing or it might be disruptive. And we can have that sort of general sense. Even like in Dharma scenes like this, you know, where someone's giving a talk or whatever, sometimes, you know, we're not even that attuned to what the teacher is saying. We're more like taking a bath in the good energy of Dharma and community and being in, you know, bathing in the wholesome space as opposed to wherever else we might be. And it's just nice to play because play with it that way because it just changes the mind's relationship to the content of thought. And then it makes it much easier to observe the mind, like uh, I think I quoted on the first week, observe the mind right at the mind. That was that line from one of the Thai forest uh, elders. Observe the mind right at the mind. And I realize we've run out of time. I sent a, a couple more articles your way in the weekly in the email, including one by Kitasaro, uh, who was also um, in the same lineage of Ajahn Armo and Ajahn Sumedho. And uh, he left, he took his robes off, and, and uh, same with um, Tanisati, uh, Tanisara, Tanisara. His, what is her name? Tanasara, his partner. And they're wonderful, dynamic duo teachers, Dharma teachers, um, somewhat based in South Africa, but they teach here in the West quite a bit. And uh, so the, he has a really good article that I sent along, Tangled in Thought, How to Beat Your Mind at Its Own Game. So I recommend you take a look at that. And especially he has some 
steps of how you reflect on thought. And I just, whenever you're, you can do it in a formal sit, but just when you're sitting in a quiet place on a couch, just to experiment like we did at the end of the sit tonight, but you can use Kittasaro's instructions just to observe thought in a more systematic way. You might find it really useful. And so next week we'll have small groups. That's all, all of you online. We have about uh, 80 folks online and about 30 or 25 people in the room. Let's all commit to join in the small groups, whether you're in person or in the Zoom group next week. And to, as you're practicing in your daily life and as you're practicing formally in your meditation, as you're practicing reading the articles, to contemplate like what might be useful to share. And it's really okay to even take a few notes about this activity of the mind in particular. And then in the weeks going forward, we're really going to get interested in the mind where it isn't so overrun by mental activity. So a more stable, settled, quiet mind. And just contemplating like how settled is it? I've never experienced the mind this settled before. This is as settled as I've ever known the mind. Wow. Well, this is just sort of settled, but I've definitely noticed the mind more settled than this. So just like getting the map of how settled is this mind. But first we have to develop the capacity to get to know the mind that's overrun by greed, hatred, and delusion and all of its and all the other hindering, um, distracting, agitating patterns. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.